Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators. Your hosts are Ava Thanheiser, myself, Dusty Jones, and Joel Amadon, who unfortunately cannot be with us today. Today, we're talking with Catherine Ye, who is an assistant professor at the Atala College of Educational Studies at Chapman University. We are talking to Catherine for many reasons, but partially also because she's playing a large advocacy role in mathematics education and beyond. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us, and please take a little bit of time to introduce yourself. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you. My name is Catherine Ye, preferred pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a math educator, a proud immigrant, Chinese-American. I'm one of the co-creators of Miss Education Twitter chat with Grace Chen from Vanderbilt. I consider myself a mother scholar that my children and being a mother greatly shape how I look at teaching and research. And I consider myself um, a community organizer. Just for those who might not have picked up on the miseducation, could you spell that out or tell us how we find that hashtag? Sure. So it's on Twitter. It's the Twitter handle or hashtag M-I-S-E-D-U-C-A-S-I-A-N. It's basically the combination of miseducation of Asian Americans, so miseduke Asian. So you finished your introduction with saying you're a community organizer. Do you want to get started telling us a little bit about that? Sure. I think this is a part that um, many in the math ed community may know or not know. I live in, in California, which has pretty progressive policies at times. Um, so for the last three years, uh, my family and I have been very active within our local community. It started three years ago when my city, a very small city called Los Alamitos, passed an ordinance or a local city law to go against the California Values Act, SB 54, which means that my city wanted to use taxpayer money, our local city money, to make schools, churches, hospitals no longer a sanctuary space. That means children and families can be separated at these spaces when they were considered safe haven. So what my family and I did with other community members was we started our own nonprofit, our own community-based org called Los Alamitos Community United. And then we, in partnership with ACLU, sued our own city. It's been now three years, about a half of, about four months ago, we won our lawsuit. Um, our city, yes, I know, right? It's huge. We won our lawsuit. Our city has repealed the anti-sanctuary ordinance, and is working to put together a human relations task force to show to our community that everyone belongs. We've also recently been pushing for ethnic studies curriculum because we believe that these perspectives about immigrant communities, about folks of color, change begins at school. So within our local community as well, we've also passed implementation of K-12 implementation of ethnic studies as a curricular and pedagogical project and also has a high school requirement. And I'm also doing this work supporting other local cities to do this as well. So yeah, that's a little bit about what I've been doing outside of um, or in connection to math ed. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, let's tie this to your work as a math educator. I would say it has transformed my perspective about math education. 
I think often in math ed, we study a lot within our field. What has been really helpful for me is to look beyond my field. I think studies has a rich, rich history that started with the third world movement in San Francisco and Berkeley, coming from folks of color, wanting to have curriculum that represented them and taught by people that look like them. And that has been a movement that has 50 years of history, where even within workshops and conferences that's being held, these workshops and conferences are free. You pay as you go. You pay as much as you can. And these workshops are throughout our, our state and our country. These workshops are led by community members, where it might be a local youth organizer talking about ethnic studies curriculum and leading it with, to other youth, or community members leading it to other community members. Math Ed is not there yet. When we have conferences about equity, it's often us in teacher ed and in research or in math talking about equity and talking about people. So let's hear a little bit about how you got started on your journey to become who you are today. So you started out as a teacher. So I've been in an education for... 20 years. And I taught in downtown Los Angeles as a bilingual teacher. I taught in Spanish and Mandarin Chinese and English. I was right in the outskirts of Chinatown. And as a teacher, even during my student teaching, I was greatly influenced by Louise Mole and also Martha Seville around community funds of knowledge. So as a classroom teacher, I made home visits to every one of my student homes. So I've been to over 300, and I'm still in contact with 60% of my students. Um, they're now in their 30s, and they'll come in every semester to my class to hang out with my future teacher candidates, to talk about the power of relationships and the power that teachers have in impacting the lives of students and their sense of belonging. So that's how I started off as a classroom teacher. That's really impressive and impactful, I think, that statement that those students that you had from all those years ago still are in contact with you, you know, for one thing, they're still in contact with you and those relationships uh, that you built were so valuable and valued by everyone. But then to think of how you're leveraging their experiences to help your future teachers now, I think is an incredible incredible way to kind of integrate all of all of these different aspects of your life together. That's really cool. I'd say so when I defended my dissertation, I, my dissertation was on culturally responsive and linguistically responsive math instruction, where my dissertation took place in a, in a bilingual Spanish English classroom. You know, doing the transcripts was like really hard, like my NEAs and all those things. So it was apparent from my fourth year teaching that looked through all of my transcripts and fixed and I corrected it. And when I defended, I had the parents and even teach students from my first year classroom teaching in that space with me. And of course my own children. And it was such a powerful experience for me because I wouldn't be there without them. And I wanted them to realize that for any of us, for me to be where I am, I am now to even get a PhD, it was because it was through them that inspired me because I felt that for too long, the, what's published in research and even in teaching 
is still too much, even from a place of love, from a deficit perspective around um, students of color in urban settings, and then also students with multiple social identities, you know, students who Subini calls it multiple marginalized, where you're a person of color and you've also been classified with a disability. And these students, I wouldn't be who I am without them. So I think first and foremost, I'm really a learner of them. I don't even know how to continue because I feel like what we talked about earlier when you said the math education community isn't there yet to learn from the community rather I don't want to put words in your head. I'm explaining what I heard. Rather that we are talking to each other rather than drawing broader. And in your own story, you're sharing how you have been learning with everybody around you. I would like to kind of follow through from when you defended your dissertation. What is your work focusing on? Or what has your work been focusing on between then and now? You know, that's so funny. My work has I'm going up for my tenure review in another year. And then when you look at my work, I look like I'm all over the place. You know, I'll be honest with you. And then I realized it connects to my children. That's why I say that I'm first and foremost a mother scholar. My oldest child has multiple disabilities. And for me, much of my time, I teach graduate students at, at Chapman. I teach our teacher ed courses, but those are in the evening. So I spend probably three out of five days in the classroom. And right now, I'm in classrooms with students who are in separated classrooms, classified as being in special ed with mild, mod, and severe disabilities. And they're also folks of color like me and my child. And my research shifted there for the last four years because I knew I had a lot to learn. As a mother, I felt like, I realized I kept trying to fix my child. I wanted her to be like me or what I thought she needed to be to be successful. And even with good intentions, I call it the pedagogy of fear. I'm worried that the world won't accept her. So then I try to conform her. But her disability is her social, is, her, is part of her identity. We don't often consider disability a cultural identity, but it is. It's created by the environment because we look at the overclassification, particularly of our black and brown boys but it's also part of who they are that needs to be honored. So I've been going into classrooms, just being with children and teachers with focus on capturing how brilliant children are, all children across social identities, particularly those with classified disabilities. And that has been transformative for me. I think it has been really helpful for our field because the field of math education and special education has always been separate. And even for myself, I was really privileged to get to work on catalyzing change, the early childhood and elementary school mathematics. And we were very intentional on the chapter on equitable instruction, where the, the teacher that captures what equitable instruction and collaborative learning and problem solving looks like was a special educator working with all students with disabilities. And they were, they're brilliant. They're working on grade level standards. They're working collaboratively. They're working on problem solving. Because for too long, I have teachers asking me, how do I teach kids with disability? What kind of intervention should I use? As of all 30 classifications of disability, all need one specific type of instruction. Instead of saying, we would never say, what's the best instruction for Asian children? Or Asian children can't do math. But we would say that about students 
where one of their social identities is that they have a disability. So that has greatly shaped my life. My second child is gender fluid. So Lori and I recently wrote about querying mathematics, challenging binary distinctions. L has greatly shaped how I look at identity and how I look at myself. And I often talk about labels and binary distinctions how in math ed it's so pervasive, high or low, smart or not, fast or slow. And all these things that we do where we try to sort and split into these binary ways are harmful for all of us, or even female or male, masculine or feminine. These are all socially constructed. So these are all things that I focus on in classrooms for my teaching to how we do this in, in very concrete ways, to then my research and working with others who know so much more than me because I'm just learning around about this right now. So could you talk to us a little bit about how your methods classes are set up and how you incorporate some of the things you talked about into those classes? I start that on day one with these descriptions of challenging labels around children I always start with the story of Nora by Hogan, which is you see these two narratives of Nora in sixth grade and Nora in seventh grade. And I pass out this three to four page description of them. It's really short. And it's just a narration of how they position Nora, where Nora in sixth grade, she's considered an A plus student. And in seventh grade, she's a D student who they think has a disability. And I give half the class sixth grade Nora, half the class seventh grade Nora, and I tell them, and I explicitly state, our students' sense of mathematical identity is shaped by the social environment of the classroom. I want you on a, on, to start mapping out, what do you notice about Nora as a math learner? And what do you notice about the classroom environment? And I want you to be as explicit as you can, you know, naming out the exact things that's happening in the classroom, the classroom discourse, the norms and rules, the type of language, the type of tasks that are given. And then they do a gallery walk in person or virtual. And my students during the gallery walk always go, did you give us two Noras? These are two different Noras, but you just call them both Noras. And it shocks them that it's the same student. It is the same student. And how that student feels about herself and how the teacher positions that student in very gendered ways, because the teacher literally says, Nora's a hard worker, she's really sweet, but she probably has a disability, positioning this latent perspective of being the submissive, quiet girl. And it's so powerful for us throughout the whole semester. Um, we start looking at our classroom spaces through this eyes of Nora. And then from that moment on, I have a community-based project where every one of my students is paired up with a student in Santana, our neighboring city. And for the first five weeks, they go on community walks with that child and that family. They get to know the child. They engage in an activity called photo voice where that child shares photos about him, her, or their self, and then around how they see mathematics in their own world. In weeks five through 15, they start to teach and co-teach with that child and with other kids designing lessons that's relevant from, that's relevant to their lives, that's relevant to their ways of knowing and being. Because 25% of those students also have a classified disability. With the goal of letting the teachers 
just center on how brilliant our children are. So all teaching events are videotaped on GoReact, and then we have opportunities then to watch those lessons together. So that's a bit, a little bit of tidbit about how I try to center that. So if anybody's interested in the tale of two Noras that you mentioned, if you just Google it, it pops right up. And I can gladly share a folder where I have the two Nora segments already separated and also my prompt. So would you like me to email that to you? That would be great. We could link that to the podcast. Yeah, we could put that in the show notes. That sounds like a great idea. Glad to. Dusty, I'm going to let you ask a few questions. So you've been answering a lot of the questions I'm thinking of. So I, that's really good. I feel like we're on the same track. Could you tell me a little more about how miseducation got started and what sort of stuff I can find? I mean, I know I can go look on Twitter, but I'm talking with you right now. So can you tell me a little bit about how the origin story of that? Sure. That origin story started about at a retreat for Asian American educators that are committed to being community activists or educational and community activists. And it was put together by Kevin Kumashira, an amazing Asian American educator that's been really influential in multicultural education and ethnic studies movement as well. So a bunch of us Asian Americans came together that are all you know, pretty decently new um, tenure track faculty or graduate students. We're just building community, learning about activist frameworks and how that can be applied to our role as in academia. Right. And Grace Chen at Vanderbilt and I said, you know what, there's no community space for us. Like, I don't know any space where it focuses on Asian Americans and our role as critical educators and critical scholars. And that talks about this work as building from social movement theory and creating community around that. So we started miseducation. This idea that for too long, Asian Americans have not been in the narrative around issues of equity. And when we are, we're intentionally positioned in data or in other ways to go against our black and brown um, brothers and sisters of color. Like we become the rationale around, oh yeah, if folks of color worked hard enough, you can challenge structural inequity. And that's when Asian American data is thrown in, right? Asian Americans mm -hmm. are doing great. And they treat us as, as we're one large monolithic group. So we wanted a space where we can learn from each other. We can unlearn to no longer be silent, to not be fall prey to being used for white supremacy, and that we can build community. So that was a space intentionally created, centering our voices, and intentionally challenging whiteness and Asian American role in whiteness. So it doesn't consist of just educators. We meet monthly and even more than that, where we highlight it can be a community, an Asian American community organizer. It might be a classroom teacher, a researcher with the goal of providing collective space for us to learn from each other. It's been about a little over a year and it's a growing group of about a thousand or so. Wow. That's great. It has been amazing. I think about how I did not have a professor, I did not know a professor or even a teacher that looked like me until three years ago. Wow. Right? My child has, until Hamilton, has never seen a person who had a main role on stage that looked like them. Mm -hmm. Or even a person that ran for political office. 
So this sense of disequilibrium, because you have been invisible so long, when we meet monthly on those monthly Twitter chats, all of us, I would say almost every one of us talk about how it's painful Mm. because we have been invisible or made invisible for so long. So it's been a, I'm very grateful for that space and the community and others who are part of it. It's really inspiring to hear the different ways you're advocating for the brilliance in students and helping correctly educate folks about what's happening in the lives of people who have been marginalized and sidelined and are just not discussed or treated poorly. I'm wondering if you can put on your, think about into the future. I was trying to think of a metaphor, but I can't. So if you were to look into the future, let's say, I don't know, five, 10, 20 years, you've been in education for 20 years. So if you think 20 years from now, what sort of things do you hope to see for, for your current students, for your children? What are your aspirations for that? I think my greatest aspiration is that we support each other and our students to challenge conformity, to challenge this idea that our work should be about following rules. Particularly as as an Asian American, there's a false narrative that, and we're often often positioned as that, that we're really quiet and we're really good at following any rules that's been assigned to us, even at times, um, losing our own cultural identity, so losing our culture, our language, to conform to what it means to be American in the U.S., mm-hmm. and which usually is often white, heteronormative, monolingual, and which most of us, many of us are not. And I hope within math ed and our students, we have them analyze rules deeply. You know, when do we follow rules? When do we not? Starting from the classroom as a math teacher, you know, which rules do we follow? When are rules created? Creating conjectures, right? Mm-hmm. So does this work all the time? Does it not? When does it and when does it not? So moving away from a binary distinction, but really looking at context and to realize that oftentimes you want our students to break the rules because some rules are meant to be broken because they were problematic to begin with. Mm-hmm. Now we look at any movement in time and my love for movement theory social movement theory, all the things that of progress we've made, it's because folks have refused to allow the rules to define them. So I would love for us within math ed, within classroom, to think about the fact that our goal is not to conform. Our goal is not to always follow the rules because the rules were created. Academia was created not for all of us. And if we are really to think about equity and social justice, We can't keep looking at little tweaks because the structure itself is broken. Like we can't look at our classrooms and say, and say teachers need to do all these things without looking at ability grouping and tracking and systems that track our teachers and our students. Right. So we have to look at the system as a whole and what needs to be done differently. And I'm excited for that because I think we're really starting to do that now. We're challenging. I think the COVID has made explicit We're all so tired, but what's happening isn't new. Like our goal isn't to go back to normal because normal is what got us here. Right. It was the individualism, the competition, you know, who can have like, who can have the most amount of toilet paper, right? It's the (laughs) sense of scarcity, this false sense of scarcity that is hurting all of us. So I love Dusty's large scale question and I'm going to do exactly the opposite. If you 
would give a piece of advice to somebody who's starting out as either a teacher or a math teacher educator, what advice would you give? Teaching in the classroom or in academia is very lonely. I think Lordy talks about the egg cart model, the egg cart model where we're all in our own little eggs and the cartons are right next to each other, but we're all like isolated. I think throughout my whole time in academia in the classroom, I often felt like I didn't belong. And I think it was just more so in the last three years with my community organizing work that I realized that it doesn't have to be that way. We have to build community. Don't do anything by yourself. Um, Spend more time with other teachers because there's so much to learn with and from them. And it also makes it so much joyful. Um, Reach out to mentors that you admire. You read a, a book or an article, contact them and work with others. You know, I've been working with Ava and a few others within my teaching and in my research. And it's so joyful. It makes work joyful. It makes work fun. It makes me realize that this feeling that I am not enough all the time, I am enough because I don't need to do it all by myself. We are enough together. Um, I think that's the most powerful thing in every way possible. Challenge individualism. Challenge this idea that you need to know it all or be it all. Because knowledge, as we know, comes from and with others. So I'm trying to figure out how to close out this podcast. And I'm thinking about how incredibly much I admire your work, Kathery, and how I'm learning from you as I'm listening back to the podcast, I'm trying to listen to what the messages were in here. And one message that comes loud and strong from you every time I talk to you is this notion of loving all your students, working with all your students, seeing the brilliance in all your students. Don't put students in different categories. I love the Eckhart thing, or different pigeonholes, but work together with them as a community. Everybody can learn from each other. I was new to the um, task that you mentioned about the two Noras. And as I've been working my way through the paper and the assignment, I just think that's one of the most powerful assignments to see how the exact same child can be very different children in very different environments. And it's up to us in some part to make sure that we don't harm the children. Does that seem a fair summary of what you said? I think so. And can I just thank you? I think this podcast is such an amazing space to center and uplift math educators. I think so many of us right now across many different spaces with remote learning or homeschooling, I would say I feel like I'm not enough almost every day. I'm not enough as a parent. I'm not enough as an educator. I'm not doing enough in our community because so many people are hurting right now and so many people are scared. Every time I talk to you, Ava, you are so generous 
you remind me that I am enough of what I am right now. So I just want to thank you. I would say, and this just reminded me of one more resource I want to make sure we put out there, is that you are amazing. Will you just quickly talk about these videos that you have created since the COVID crisis hit and where they are so people can access those? Oh, yeah. These are so much fun. Okay. We can tell and talk about math. It's like joyful. Okay. So we have a <laughs> Chapman U math play website. And it started, and for those of you who are thinking about student teaching and how you engage your student teachers in mathematics experiences when they may not have access to children in classrooms, we started the Chapman U math play series as a place for my students who are future teachers to create lessons that's centered on mathematical play and problem solving, using everyday things that's around us because math should build from what's around us. That's differentiated in the sense that it allows and supports learning for children from K through six in every activity. And it's also honoring children's first languages. So Chapman Youth Math Play, if you go onto that site, has tons of activities that are growing every month. And these are math activities done by myself and my students that's available in English, Chinese, and Spanish. If we also noticed that there were not a lot of videos that talked about how to engage in problem-solving activities using daily resources, that was always available. That wasn't a dubbed over in Spanish or, or Mandarin Chinese, but it was spoken in someone's native language and their heritage language and with communities and with children that use that language as well. Um, all the activities and videos are around two to four minutes, so they're quite short, and they're all play-based and cover everything from, from geometric reasoning, algebraic sense-making to numbers and operations, all through play. Dusty, last chance. I just, I was peeking around in there. I know I said I'm not going to go on the internet while we're having this discussion, but I, <laughs> I heard math play and I thought I had to go look at that. Wow, those are awesome. So there's videos People can use those at home. I guess teachers could use these in the classroom. And if you click on the description section, if you go to extend on the description of the videos, you'll notice there's hyperlinks. We're using like a, a website, then where we, it's hyperlinked on. And there's also handouts. So handouts oh, wow. that's written in English and Spanish that talks about where's the math, how do you differentiate across grade levels, and also questions to ask that move beyond the answer. Right, to reasoning, sense-making, collective problem-solving, building from each other. So make sure you check out the description, extended description section. Each awesome. one has them as well. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Kathleen, for joining us today. It is such a deep, deep honor. I'm really grateful for your time for both of you. And thinking about Joel as well, where he's here with us. <laughs> he always is. Thank you again for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you're able to implement something that you heard and take an opportunity to interact with other math teacher educators.